This is ESG Decoded, the podcast powered by Global Affairs Associates to provide relevant, actionable updates related to business innovation and sustainability. Join Caitlin Allen and Amanda Shea of Global Affairs Associates for thoughtful, nuanced conversations with industry leaders that explore the complexities, the risks, and the opportunities connected to all things ESG. I'm Yvonne Harris, a consultant and co-host, and I will be collaborating with Caitlin and Amanda for the discussions that we will present on this podcast. Put simply, ESG is everything that is not on your balance sheet. This leaves room for misunderstanding, oversimplification, and the tendency towards one-size-fits-all perspectives. None of that will happen on this podcast. Enjoy this episode. Welcome back to ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen, and today I am so thrilled to say that I have Rob West of Thundersaid Energy on the podcast. Rob is, I think, in my opinion, one of the best analysts out there in energy transition. He founded Thundersaid Energy in 2019 as the research consultancy for energy technologies and energy transition. TSE's research is used by 170 organizations to understand the opportunities in energy technologies and energy transition. Prior to Thundersaid, Rob built up the energy practice at Redburn, among the world's leading independent equity research firms. He was responsible for the team's energy strategy and commodity market research while also covering super majors. Rob is also a research associate at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Like I said, I'm just so excited because I feel like I know you. I follow your research. I've, I've seen all your videos. <laughs> and I think we both share an understanding and a, a mutual approach to all of this that the analysis is crucial, right? And just to quote your website, we all see hyperbolic headlines around wind, solar, batteries, hydrogen, fuel cells, and other breakthrough technologies. But what is their true impact? What do they cost? What are the risks? And a variety of other questions. So I just so, so pleased to have you. Well, great. Me, me too. I, I think we'll have a good objective discussion about facts and numbers and no politics and, and just try and figure out how we meet the energy needs of the world and take out all the CO2. Absolutely. Well, so let me start with a somewhat personal question. The, the name of your company is so unique, Thunder Said Energy. Could you tell us a little bit about the origin of that, why you cho- chose to name it and, and what it really means to you? Definitely. It, it's from a slightly obscure and impossible to understand modernist poem called The Wasteland by, by T.S. Eliot. And, and really the, the idea is we have to avoid the world becoming a wasteland. And it's, it's kind of the final section of the poem is called What the Thunder Said. And it's his answer to the world not becoming a wasteland. Uh, and, and that's, I guess, the, the point is that's what I think the ESG movement should be about. I love how direct that is, right? It's very strong. Uh, unnecessarily yeah. academic it is as well. <laughs> I apologize for that. No, I love it. It's not only catchy, it's the sort of thing that you hear and you're like, I want to know more about that. Where did that name come from? And so the wasteland, yeah, let's avoid the earth becoming a wasteland. I think we can all agree with that. (laughs) Good premise to start with. But I'd love to hear more about your background and how you came to found Thunderset Energy. So you were at Redburn, of course. 
you're also an associate at Oxford. Uh, what led you to, to kind of break out on your own? Well, I was running on a team at Redburn, and I'd go around doing the, the rounds of meetings that you do as Wall Street analyst. And, you know, I just got this sense that this thing called energy transition was going to become the biggest question in the world. And when I'd go and meet investors and talk to them about it, I would hear the same thing again and again, which was, yes, our strategy is to divest from everything to do with conventional energy and industry and then outbid one another on shares of Tesla. And it struck me that that might not be the entire picture of how you would transition the world's largest and most important industry to a point of, of meeting the needs of the world and, and taking all the CO2 out. And it really strikes me that this isn't about like demonizing some boogeyman and pulling out all the capital. It's about finding places that you can put capital in. They're going to earn a return and help your company. And, and, and so what are those things? And I thought I should have a go at making a little research firm that tries to find them all and back it up with numbers and data. I, I love that because I, I always say we cannot divest our way out of climate change. It's not going to work. It's not even possible when 80 plus percent of the world's energy is currently provided by fossil fuels. So it's just, you know, we have to come I out mean, of can, the sky, even, right? Go ahead. Can we even divest our daily lives from it? I've tried. Have you tried to live a day without consuming any fossil fuels? It's impossible in modern life. It, it really is impossible. And I think- I did manage to do it a couple of you? weekends ago, where I just sort of sat in a cave for about an hour and a half and did nothing. But then after a while, I was a little bored, I have to be honest. <laughs> Precisely. And I mean, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people are really blind to that and don't understand the role that, that it's really tough, they right? play. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've got data on this. And I think the thing that really scares me about it is two thirds of all the CO2 emissions is embedded in stuff. And you don't, you know, you don't even realize it. So, you know, I, I love the stat that, you know, a 1.3 kilogram laptop or tablet, it's 150 kilograms of CO2. And, you know, you think steel, one ton per ton, cement, one ton per ton, copper, four tons per ton. Sorry, my laptop, 100 tons per ton, you know, CO2 per massive product. And it, it, even the, the stuff that you know, goes into making the energy transition, the photovoltaic silicon that goes into solar panels, 140 kilograms of CO2, kilogram of photovoltaic materials, or the carbon fiber that goes into wind turbine blades, 30 tons of CO2 per ton of, of carbon fiber. So, you know, I, I think you look at that rationally and you think, rather than kind of split the world up down this artificial black and white boundary, clean versus dirty, no, there's there's 40 sectors in the world that each emit more than 0.5% of the world's CO2. And we have to find ways to help all of them you know, improve and, and take, take the CO2 out. Yeah, I think, and the to me, the headline there is, this is more complicated than you think it is, right? I mean, than most people think it is, <laughs> than most policymakers think it is. And, and I think there's so many dangers to, like you said, these sort of black and white policies from whether it's the investment side, whether it's from governments, local, state, federal, international, et cetera. And there's so much danger there for 
really truly misguided policy and and misguided decision making and so you know again just thank you rob right for <laughs> bringing us all back to earth with your research and so so let's let's talk a little bit about about some of your analysis then what do you think are the biggest opportunities you see to achieving a net zero economy well can i can i cheat and tell you why I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you of and course. then tell you what I tell you. I, I like to look at everything on a cost curve. No bar on a cost curve means anything unless you look at it relative to all the other bars on a cost curve. Uh, and so what I have is from all the research that you know, we've been doing at Thunder said, is a cost curve of 150 different technologies that could decarbonize the entire world about three times over. So this is good news because we only need to decarbonize it one time's over. And then the entire energy transition becomes which bundle of technologies do you pick? So economists warning, economists talk coming up. I think we should choose the cheapest bundle because it's going to hit every single person the more and more and more it costs to you know, clean up the world's environment and energy system. And so the Thunder of Energy Roadmap to net zero costs an average of about $40 per ton. And I always think there's five big buckets. So the first one is renewables. We have to ramp renewables to 40% of the global grid. That's 20% of all global energy. That's bucket number one. Bucket number two, switch coal to gas. Coal is one ton of CO2 per megawatt hour. Gas is 0.35 tons of CO2 per megawatt hour. Just that same megawatt hour generated with gas, two thirds less CO2. Three, make it as efficient as possible the way you use the energy. And there's hundreds of technologies in that set of, of things. Now, you might be thinking, well, if you've still got gas, I also have quite a lot of oil in this energy mix, how is it net zero? And the answer is you have to capture, that's the fourth bucket, capture a lot of that CO2 at source and dispose of it in the ground so it doesn't go into the atmosphere. And finally, and this is the biggest bucket and the biggest opportunity, the best way to stop the world becoming a wasteland is to directly stop it becoming a wasteland. We have deforested 5 billion acres of the world since the last couple hundred years. That has released 1 trillion tons of CO2. That is one third of all anthropogenic emissions. And if you reforest an acre of land, it absorbs about 5 tons of CO2 per acre per year. Uh, three billion acres getting reforested. So I've got a, a, a global carbon sink, about 20 billion tons per year from restoring nature. And if you want to restore nature, that's the way to do it. And if you want to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere, that, that's, that's the way to do it. And, and the costs of this are not high. Um, somewhere between 15 and $50 per ton for a decent project in this space. So those five buckets get us there. And that's my attempt to summarize 2,000 pages of research and 500 models into a few short sentences. Sorry, I went on a bit. Well done. No, I mean, 2,000 pages of research. I think that was approximately two minutes. So well done. No, I mean, first of all, it's so encouraging to hear that, yes, it is possible. It is possible. It's possible without oh, a spreadsheet, but yeah, it's possible on a spreadsheet, I mean, right? Now, now let's see in the real world. <laughs> right. 
But but I also am sure you're familiar with Goldman Sachs's carbonomics research. And they also have that, you know, that per annum transition from coal to natural gas is so important to achieving net zero in the carbonomics research. It's so important in your research. And yet, you know, we have people here saying in the US saying, oh, let's stop, you know, producing natural gas. It's a little bit disconnected from the reality of the global need, right? There's a global need to reduce and move away from from coal to natural gas. It's part of most of the really well-known research on how we get to net zero. So, I mean, just pointing out that that's that's one of the things that stands out to me because it's also there in carbonomics. I also would love to talk a little bit more about your last point, which is how do you stop the earth from becoming a wasteland? Will you stop making a wasteland, right? stop deforesting, paving over, you know, every single corner of the city we possibly can, right? It seems sort of obvious, and yet we see it everywhere. I mean, everywhere you go, it seems there's people paving over, cutting down forests. I mean, in, in cities like, like Houston, right? We're still paving over the, the, the suburbs, even though we know that that contributes to flooding here. How do we get, how do we get people to be incentivized to, to stop deforesting, to maybe do more thoughtful development? It's not about not developing. It's about doing it really thoughtfully and carefully. How do we get people and companies and governments to, to think about this differently? I think the best answer to that is to go with, go to them with constructive Solution. So I'll tell you. I'll tell you about a project I did recently that I'm actually really excited by. So it works like this: we've got a, a group of consumers on the grid, and what we want to do is to go to them with a fully carbon neutral microgrid. I mean, not micro. We're talking about something that's you know 100 plus megawatts. Um, but it's carbon neutral in the sense that we're going to get as much wind as we can get into this mix, as much solar as we can into this mix. And that ends up meaning that wind and solar do about 25% of the total demand of that grid. Um, and then the rest is done with really clean, really efficient combined heat and power. Um, you know, a typical simple cycle gas turbine gets 40% efficiency. We're talking about 80% thermal efficiency on, on these turbines. And then the unavoidable emissions that come from the, the combustion emissions of the gas, we're going to fully offset using nature-based carbon removals that are real, incremental, long-lived, measurable, and biodiverse and go and restore some of this wasteland that we talked about. And there's a couple of things that are cool about this. The first thing that's cool about it is this is legitimately a zero carbon project, right? Total CO2, zero. And there's no one trying to fleece anybody. It's just, this is what we want to provide. So how much is it going to cost? That's the second thing that's cool about it. About nine cents a kilowatt hour. So if you think in Europe, where I am, the average commercial grid price is about 15 euro cents per kilowatt hour. So you could carve out this group 
and put them you know, on a package of electricity that's actually cheaper than, than what's out there on the grid. And third, and this is what's also very interesting about it, is full price stability. So the last hundred years of either being an energy producer or an energy consumer, you know, you've been whipsawed left, right, and center. And what you have with this is an integrated package of gas assets, pipelines, CHPs, wind turbines, solar panels, and forests, all bundled together at a flat, pre-agreed, contracted price. The buyer has certainty, the seller has certainty, and that, that's bankable and financeable in a way that maybe hasn't been the case in our industry in the past. And I think, you know, find me somebody who says no to that. Somebody who says, no, I don't want cheaper energy. I don't want carbon neutral energy. I'm sorry, how dare you plant a forest? Don't you know I hate nature? I mean, you know, find me that person. And you know, I, I don't think that person should be making decisions for a large organization. If, if <laughs> they have that attitude, right? So I, I think if you can... Go, go to people with that kind of offering. That'd be my answer. You know, give them something that it's just a no-brainer opportunity. I'm so excited to hear about this. And especially, you know, I, just to go a little bit deeper on the forest, planting forest part. So many people, and I understand there's there have in the past been some problems with, with verification, measurement, et cetera. You know, the integrity of an actual credit reforestation or afforestation project. I understand that. But it it seems that a lot of people are using the past flaws or even even the current need to improve those and improve those systems. It seems that folks are using that as to say, no, carbon credits don't count. Like we don't want any carbon credits. We don't want any reforestation. And to me it just seems yeah, so I, I bizarre. Totally what you know just because a system needs improvement doesn't mean you just throw the whole system out especially because like you said i mean that is concrete progress that is concretely transforming the wasteland that is concrete I, I like it's, see it's it so feel it touch it the, 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 the sort of i don't want to use the word double standards because it's a loaded term but i'm going to use it anyway <laughs> when you talk to people who are like really really big on green hydrogen and you say, but okay, but you know, like the electrolyzer is only 65% efficient. And you know that the second law of thermodynamics says converting any form of energy into any other form of energy will always have efficiency losses in it. They say second law of thermodynamics. We can, we can innovate our way through these laws of thermodynamics. And you want to say, are you sure you could innovate your way through a fundamental law of the universe? But then it comes to a tree and the way you're going to structure a nature-based carbon removal project. Well, we haven't got it right in the past. I agree with you. But as, as you said, they're like, no, there is no, no possible improvement. And I, I just, I always love data, right? And so think about corn yields in the United States. So a hundred years ago, the, the yield on an acre of corn in the United States was about 20 bushels per acre. You know what the average corn yield is in the United States today? 175 bushels per, per acre, right? And, and you actually see the same thing if you look at pistachio crops in California, which really started, started growing these pistachio trees 50 years ago. Again, a seven times improvement in the yield in 50 years. And so, you know, t t tell me that people learning to 
plant trees and restore the environment cannot make any improvements whatsoever and that it's doomed to fail. I'm sorry, I just don't agree. You know, as we do more and more of this, I think we can start doing it better and better. I I could not agree more. I think that the role of nature-based solutions is, it's really the whole point, right? And in the end, it's the whole point is like you said, let's transform this wasteland that we've created. I'm joking. Obviously, there's still very, very beautiful parts of the earth. But let's support those that remain. Let's continue to learn how to properly reforest and properly plant new forests in the appropriate places. Let's learn how to monetize that, turn that, you know, get that into the, you know, mainstream economy so that there's that financial and economic incentives. And, and really like at the point, at the end of the day, right, I, I, I don't want to hug my laptop. Sometimes I want to throw it out the window, but if you're in a beautiful <laughs> forest, you know, it's if you can't not be touched by nature or feel more at peace, you know, and there's research on this, right? I mean, this is human nature. We need trees. We need natural settings. We need prairies. We need forests. We need all of those to be generally healthy. And so, you know, again, looking back at the CO2 comparisons you brought up, right? My laptop versus (laughs) whatever else, or your tablet versus whatever else. It's not about not having those things, but it's about looking holistically at the entire picture of what sustainability really means. Couldn't couldn't agree more. I think the first step to really changing your emissions as a person is to know where they come from and to know what you can do to improve them. And I've taken a hard look at mine. I'll tell you something. I, Caitlin, I quite like chocolate. I, I just actually quite like it. And I was really upset. I found out there's about four kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of chocolate. And I, I sort of had this horrible moral dilemma. Well, should I never eat chocolate ever again in my life and you know I, I don't think you can go down that road too too fully because you, you figure out that the, if you want to eradicate all of your emissions as a person well it gets pretty dark and so look I, I think you can try and figure out where you can minimize them and for the stuff that you absolutely can't minimize that's where you acknowledge that I have an environmental footprint and I need to offset that footprint somehow and I'm not trying to point any fingers at anyone here and say, you know, this company should be wiped off the face of the earth. For, they dare to sell me chocolate. I just think everybody should kind of be, be adult about it and acknowledge what they do and, and take responsibility for it. Yeah, Rob, I mean, I, I knew I was going to really feel like I was your friend immediately, but... <laughs> <laughs> I also love well, I think chocolate. I think we see eye to eye on all this stuff. Well, well, we do. And I mean, again, you're, if you don't have a footprint, it's because you're dead, right? We're, we're all going to have a footprint on the earth. All companies are going to have a footprint. It's not that we can just say, we'll stop, you know, stop using laptops, right? Obviously not possible for our lives, our businesses, etc. But it's about being thoughtful about it. And, and then again, you know, as humans, we've taken so much from the earth. What can we give back in the form of reforestation, afforestation, nature-based solutions, soil carbon? There's so many beautiful nature-based solutions that really complement. Blue carbon, uh, biochar, seaweed. There's so many. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. Endless. 
It is. And I mean, gosh, I didn't expect us to go so far into the nature base, but I've really enjoyed this. <laughs> uh, let's, let's. Well, once, once we get started on nature, I can force a Britain on this stuff. So. And by the way, you know, all of this is backed up. You can go to Rob's website, go to Thunderstead Energy and actually read and purchase the research about this. So, you know, this is not just two people that are like, we love trees, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is actually... We love um, trees, but in a commercially minded way where you can make money <laughs> turning them into carbon credits and, and using those carbon credits to produce carbon neutral energy. And, and I think that's really important. Very important. So like a, lot of, a lot of the research that I'm doing is, is really about fi- finding opportunities. So it, it, it's one thing to have good facts and stats and numbers that are kind of good numbers to have at your fingertips. But I always think that the goal of this is to translate it through to, you know, here is a thing the company can invest in and make a return on that investment. And it's got to work. It'll be technically ready. And you've got to know how it's going to take CO2 out of that, that mix. And, and you've got to have numbers to understand all of that. And that, that's really the main point of the, the research. And I just feel bad, Caitlin, because I feel like I've spent too long boring you with nature-based solutions when we, we could have talked about supercapacitors or carbon fiber or all this other stuff. So maybe we'll do a deep dive on, on something else in a, a later session. I, I think we absolutely will and we should, but it's certainly not boring. And, and you know, but while we're we're still here, I, I did want to ask you about, I know opportunities are huge, but I'm really intrigued by a lot of your research that says something different than what, say, the conventional thinking is about energy policy. And I was wondering if we could spend a little time on maybe one or two examples of those things where the data surprised you or is surprising, perhaps, because it doesn't align with, say, our, I, I want to say conventional thinking. It's not really wisdom anymore. <laughs> conventional thinking in whether it's the left or the right on, on energy policy. What are some of those examples that have surprised you and perhaps might be surprising to listeners? Well, the biggest one at the moment for me is inflation versus deflation. So we've seen narratives published by people like the IEA saying renewable energy is just going to keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So everybody should invest in renewable energy. Let me interject real quick. IEA is International Energy Agency. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Sorry, I I get lost in acronyms. That's okay. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) The first thing I want to say to this is I spent over a decade helping people invest in commodities. You generally don't want to invest in something when the price is going down. You want to invest in something when the price is going up. That's a side note. You definitely, definitely don't want to invest in something when the price is going down and the cost is also going up because that's your, your margins getting squeezed. And, and what I'm worried about with, with a lot of the models I've been building recently, I am looking for this deflation. I want to find this deflation. I want to find it and put it in my models, but I'm finding more inflation than deflation in the cost of particularly renewable energy, as the energy transition progresses. And, and here's why. If you think about that, that solar panel or that wind turbine, we're at the point now where the majority of the cost is materials. It's photovoltaic silicon, it's steel, it's cement, it's copper, it's aluminium, it's fiberglass, it's petrochemicals, it's carbon fiber. All of this stuff has a CO2 footprint. And it costs money to decarbonize that stuff. And stuff gets more expensive it's going to flow through and increase the costs of 
wind turbines and solar panels and batteries and EVs and hydrogen. And I tell you, the most bullish thing I'm bullish on in all of the energy transition at the moment is copper. You know, I have demand for copper going from 25 million tons a year to 75 million tons a year on my roadmap of how the world gets to net zero. And one of the reasons is because demand, the demand trebles is there's about four times more copper per kilowatt of renewables and kilowatt of conventional energy. Uh, there's about four times more copper per electric vehicle than conventional vehicle. And so as I ramp up those things, my demand goes up. And all grades of copper have halved in the last 20 years. They're going to keep going down. And we've got to decarbonize the production of copper. And, and there's, there's one more thing that gets e even stranger here, which is the circularity. So copper goes into my solar panels. I'm then going to use those solar panels to decarbonize copper. So if the price of copper goes up, my solar panels get more expensive. But then if I have to use solar panels to decarbonize copper, the cost of decarbonizing copper gets more expensive as well, which means that the copper price goes up, which means that solar panels get more expensive. Did you see it? There's sort of a feedback loop. And it's not one feedback loop. It's hundreds of feedback loops. You know, I then have to decarbonize aluminium using solar panels. And then the aluminium gets more expensive and the solar panels get more expensive. And so all of these things go around in a big feedback loop. Where I'm worried that the, the costs of energy transition, um, we're going we're gonna to end up building such a costly energy system that people get priced out of it. And people get priced out of living their lives. I think people want, genuinely want, sustainability but the version of sustainability we might end up giving them is is a really expensive version that they don't want and i don't want to create a, a downer but i guess the next logical question one might ask is how do you protect against that yeah no i i i think well first of all my quick answer to that is more complex informed policy making and again like if we could get everybody to just read rob's <laughs> thunder said energy roadmap to zero you know that would be a start right but again we have to get deeper than the headlines we have to get deeper than the conventional thinking we have to get into the weeds of all of this so that we're not making those decisions that have the unintended consequence of actually keeping millions of people in energy poverty for the next hundred years, right? Like what, what is the, you know, what are all of those unintended consequences? And then, like you said, how do we, how do we mitigate them? It's not easy stuff. And I think a lot of people are just looking for the silver bullet and it seems really easy to say, well, make everything renewable and ban all fossil fuels. Sounds great right? Like, sure, that sounds easy. No, it's not. And it's not as simple as it sounds. And so I think the more people that start getting in the weeds on the issues and can really bring, you know, more, more deeper analysis to the table, the, the better the conversations are going to be, the better the policy is going to be. And, you know, and it's, and it might be different region to region. It's, it's yeah. going to look different in the U.S., even within the U.S. It's going to look different in Texas than it looks in Wisconsin. So I think, yeah, again, we're, we're not here to say the answers are, are all right there, but we're here to say that the current thinking is probably inadequate, right? I go in two directions on this. Like, I've, I've had conversations with policy people and they haven't entirely filled me with confidence that 
all policy people want to go into the complexity. And as a result of that, I think the best advice I, I can suggest is to prepare not not for what's around the very next corner of the very next policy, but where, where we're probably going to end up. You know, looking through the inevitable distortions that these policies create, and what, what are we going to want to fall back on? And I think you know every, every company that goes through a strategy cycle or a planning cycle is really thinking about the future of their company five to ten years out, rather than being perfectly positioned for the policy that will be announced next month. And, and maybe that that's right. Is is to if you're doing long-term planning to think about bounce backs and where, where we'll spring back to and where, where the rational middle will, will end up being. And I think companies that get that right can, can actually do really well in, in the energy transition. Yeah, absolutely. And again, just to link it back to ESG for, for a lot of folks, that E, the, the E issue of energy transition under environment is so important to Really, everyone. I don't think there's a sector now that could claim that this this you know may not affect them, right? Realistically, it's important that all companies are aware of of the very quickly changing, it seems, energy mix, energy mix related policies, etc. The impacts on costs, the impacts on company strategy, etc. So I'm you know, I'm doing make, my making own making that um, connection. I'm doing my own personal reforestation project. To me, just I thought. I want to practice what I preach. So we're buying up some land and going to reforest it. And my wife and I are going to take out our entire lifetime CO2. I, I understand wow. that's much easier for a entitled millennial two people <laughs> to do than for you know a, a corporation with emissions in the tens of thousands of tons per year. But I have in my travels come across good companies in the carbon removal space. I don't have any personal interest or financial interest in these companies, but if I can ever make a introduction, I'm always happy to do that. Thank you, Rob. I, I think that's that's wonderful. And I hope you're on some sort of social media so I can follow your reforestation project. <laughs> that yeah, is really get its cool. own account, yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, we have really gone all over the map today. <laughs> Way different than what I thought this conversation was going to be and way more awesome than I could have imagined it. So thank you oh, so thank much you. for coming on. Is Great there, um, thank you. absolutely. And I think we will have to do it again. So yeah, for our yeah. listeners, check out the links. We'll include the links to Thunderset Energy in, in the posts for this episode. As always, please share, like it, let us know your feedback, any sort of reactions you had. Criticism is more than, than, than feedback. I mean, stuff that you think is, is wrong or, or, or should be challenged. Um, that's always where I get the best research ideas from. So please don't be shy. If you have constructive criticism or comments, I'd love to hear it. Fantastic. Oh, I just realized I had one more question for you. Yeah, go for it. I had left <laughs> to the end, which is all of your publications and in a question mark. <laughs> I'm always thinking, I wonder what that is. Is that something that's British or is that, is that just Rob? So could you tell us about your questions? <laughs> well, Caitlin, I, I operate under the assumption that about 2% of research gets read, but 100% of titles do. And so 
I just think if, if you're reading the title of a research report, you want to know, well, what question is this going to answer for me? And we all get hundreds of things that cross our desks. So I, I kind of believe in telling people what you're going to tell them so that they can decide whether they want to invest uh, scarce hours in the day, scarce minutes in the day, you know, re- reading a report. Well, it's a great tactic. And I can assure everyone that it's well worth your while to read Thunder You better make work. this uh, podcast title a question. <laughs> of course, we have to. <laughs> yes, we definitely will. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Thank you so, so much, Rob. Thank you for listening to ESG Decoded. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume yours and follow ESG Decoded and Global Affairs Associates across social media platforms. Until our next episode, take what you learned today to drive long-term value for your organization by doing good for people and for the planet.